You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. When you talk about the different sectors or the different industries or uh, different parts of the government, uh, we have to recognize that a lot of these strategies aren't necessarily or shouldn't be used as one size fits all. Uh, so they have to actually take a look at the individual risks and likelihood of those risks coming to reality to identify what are the best mitigation programs activities for their respective agencies. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there is no silver bullet, there is no one size fits all strategy, mm-hmm. but they are definitely programs that need to exist. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Data is undoubtedly the 21st century's most valuable commodity. It's both the fuel that drives modern computing as well as the product of today's computing systems. As of right now, there are more than 200 billion devices generating data, and much of this data is being created or consumed by governments. But when it comes down to it, who really owns this data? What if this data is a citizen's personal information? Does the individual own it? Or does the government that created it own it? The need to answer these complex questions and understand legal and compliance requirements related to privacy has given birth to the role of the chief privacy officer within government. And as we close out Cybersecurity Awareness Month, it's important to state that you can have security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. The two really go hand in hand as officials at all levels of government work to protect both internal systems and the personal citizen data they hold. An increasing number of governments in recent years have appointed these chief privacy officers, showing their commitment to citizens' privacy and security. And today, I'm fortunate to have a conversation with one of the top privacy chiefs in the United States to talk about his role, priorities, challenges, and thoughts on the future. James Byrd is the chief privacy officer for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, at the Department of Homeland Security. Bird is responsible for ensuring CISA integrates full individual privacy protections into the management of a safe, secure, and resilient cyber and physical infrastructure. His office represents the privacy interests of all Americans by promoting transparency, fairness, and equality in CISA's activities, strategies, and operations. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. One of the things I'm really interested in is, is your role as chief privacy officer. It's a newer role to government, I think, and one that I think globally has expanded. But I'm really curious to help my listeners understand what are some of the priorities that you have in this role and what kind of wakes you up in the morning? Sure. Uh, so the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act of 2018 established the role of the privacy officer for CISA. Uh, in my job, I'm responsible primarily for the privacy policy and privacy compliance of the agency. Though privacy officials aren't necessarily a brand new role altogether, uh, those in the government may be familiar with the term SEOP or Senior Agency Official for Privacy. A SEOP may be a CIO, it may be a CISO, or it may very well be a person dedicated specifically to privacy. Uh, you may have heard of chief privacy officers at a department level. However, it, it's not very common to have a dedicated privacy officer for a specific agency. They do exist throughout the federal government, uh, but for it to be statutorily required is a bit different. Uh, in my role as a privacy officer over at CISA, 
some of the things that kind of has me worried or just wakes me up in the middle of the morning due to a, a concern are incidents, uh, whether it's an incident with the agency itself or an incident that we have to manage, whether they're cybersecurity or physical base. So uh, what are incidents? They're typically something that has to do with significant uh, concerns with people, places, things, or money. Uh, this is where it affects our detrimental to health, your finances, or so on. Uh, part of our mission at CISA is to kind of protect both people and infrastructure against those type of incidents, whether they're cyber, physical, man-made, technological, or natural. So what kind of keeps me up from the privacy perspective is that when those incidents affect individual people, especially cybersecurity incidents, where people's data are lost or more commonly these days, exploited for nefarious means. I think a lot of us remember the there was a big uh, a big hack. Um, I think it was was it around 2013, 2014 of OPM, um, and and that's one where I know a lot of information was exploited. But I'm actually curious to know when we think of the the information out there around citizens like myself, it really happens to be at the the state and local levels. Um, really, really tip of the spear. At least when it, obviously the federal level, there are some things like IRS and, and others. But I think of a lot of the interactions I have with with my uh, with my local and, and state governments. Do you, especially being part of uh, Department of Homeland Security, do you do you build policy and do you interact with those uh, those mo- more localized governments? So, our agency is built on the concept of partnerships, whether they're with private businesses or state, local, territorial, and tribal uh, organizations or governments. So, you're absolutely right when you point out that a lot of these incidents occur locally, uh, and they are actually responded to by first responders or incident uh, leaders. Uh, that are based locally. Uh, what we do is that we build uh, and strengthen relationships with all those incident responders at the state and local level. So they are basically the pointy end of the sphere in response and can help support their uh, local jurisdictions in a more speedy and expedient manner. Uh, a, a lot of the work that we do is basically sharing information with those state and locals, uh, providing them with technical resources where available and helping them figure out risk mitigation strategies for both active incidents and potential incidents that occur so that if they are impacted by incident, they're resilient and can bounce back from it rather quickly. I'm really interested. So obviously the C in CISA stands for cybersecurity, and and you've touched on the fact that uh, cybersecurity programs, generally speaking, tend to be invasive. And, and to be able to operate and be successful, they have to be. They have to take those deep dives in there. How do you tackle such a tricky dichotomy where, where you have to protect the privacy of, of the, the data and information that, that's there, but you have to allow for the invasiveness of a cybersecurity program to be successful and, and protect uh, that information as well. Sure. Uh, so we, we kind of have to acknowledge something up front. Uh, a more than substantial amount of cybersecurity programs are monitoring programs, uh, whether it's for network security, endpoint detection, or insider threat monitoring. It includes activities such as examining SMTP or email traffic or performing ca- packet capture on network activity. These are essential activities within those cybersecurity services. Additionally, uh, whether you're talking about the content of those activities itself or the metadata about uh, SMTP or network traffic, metadata by itself can at times reveal just as much sensitive personal information when examined with another source as it would if you looked at pure communications contained within that network information. Uh, when used inappropriately or for nefarious means, 
these programs essentially become electronic surveillance programs and no longer are merely network monitoring programs. And this is such a major concern that the misuse of these tools uh, are covered by something called the Wassenaar arrangement that was established in the early 1990s under category and category five. It's basically an international agreement that includes the United States that governs the exporting of arms and munitions. So you have this international coalition that kind of looks at certain cybersecurity programs as if they were on the same level as a nuclear weapon or something of that sort. Uh, so how do you prevent a cybersecurity monitoring program from flipping the switch and becoming a surveillance program? And that's something that we deal with on the government level all the time because there's a public concern that's going to happen. And there's also just the personal concern of uh, those in the government that, hey, the tools that we use to protect ourselves can be exploited and misused for nefarious purposes. So over here at CISA, we've developed both policy and technology-based privacy protections as a part of our network monitoring programs, such as Einstein and NCPS. Uh, these protections range from information handling policies to role-based training on these policies to actual technical mitigations that enforces things like need to know and limits inappropriate access. It's critical for organizations, government or otherwise, to have these controls in place to prevent the misuse of these tools. That's really interesting. I know, uh, obviously, when the creation of the Patriot Act happened uh, after September 11th, there was a lot of publicity later on around the invasiveness of that and and the the allowance for government to take liberties. And I would imagine that within your role, your job is almost the opposite. It's to kind of support and build trust with the citizens to understand that you've put parameters in place to not only protect their data, but ensure that any data that you have is used properly. And it's, it's like you said, not used for nefarious reasons. Would, would you think that one, that role is, is successful in kind of building that trust? And two, do you think it's going to continue to expand across government as there's been a little bit of kind of polarization between government and citizen? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the role has been expanding for a while. So about five years ago, there was the establishment uh, via executive order of the Federal Privacy Council. Uh, the Federal Privacy Council used to be a part of the CIO's council back in the day, but it's run out of the Office of Management and Budget, and it convenes all the privacy officials across the federal government to kind of make sure that privacy is standardized across the executive branch. Uh, the Federal Privacy Council basically convenes together privacy officers and other uh, officials that are responsible for privacy and gets them to uh, talk about the issues that the public are bringing to them and kind of develop strategies for addressing them both as a whole as government for different regions and sectors and individually as individual privacy officers. Now, I view in my role, I am a public advocate of sorts. Uh, that's a individual person, if they are concerned about a uh, have a privacy concern about a program activity within the agency, they can file a complaint with us, but typically that complaint goes to the agency or goes to an inspector general or a general counsel's office, and they never hear about the complaint again, and they're lucky if they hear the complaint is resolved. Uh, the person doesn't really have the ability to knock on an agency's door and ask, what's the status of my complaint? Uh, as basically a public advocate uh, for individuals, especially about privacy concerns, it's my responsibility to make sure those concerns are addressed in the agency. Uh, a lot of times it's regarding transparency. Uh, people believe that the government may be doing something with their data that uh, they believe is wrong. When in reality, the government may not even be collecting that data to begin with. But sometimes an agency may be so incredibly opaque 
that a member of the public wouldn't know any better. So part of the job is basically raising that concern to others within the agency and then identifying whether, hey, is it a legitimate concern or is it that we've done poor messaging or that we haven't been transparent enough with the public and we've allowed these concerns to raise and they're superficial concerns. Now, on the other hand, when they are very real concerns and we have seen very public instances of uh, very real activities that kind of walk the line a bit, if not crossed it altogether, uh, my job is not just to clean it up, but prevent it from happening again. Uh, this is where we talk about the policy point of view where, and controls, where we make sure that staff are really using these tools and doing these activities for the purposes in which they were intended for. And basically taking that public perception and making sure that the trust remains, because the last thing that we want to ever see is that uh, revealing of an activity that the government should not have been doing. And the public is now reluctant to provide the same information that they were previously providing us in the past. I think it's fantastic that government is investing in, in roles like this and in, in programs like this, because I, I think anything that can bring the two entities together, meaning the, the citizens and, and the government bodies together and build that trust is something that's, that's absolutely needed. I, I want to touch on something real quick. You mentioned, it's really interesting to me. You, you touched on the uh, Federal Privacy Council. I'm curious to know, obviously you guys convene and I would imagine you're sharing and collaborating and, and understanding challenges and, and ways that you're being successful um, mitigating those challenges. Are, are you finding a council like this to be something that's really valuable to you? Because I know in other areas of government, especially when you think around data and the chief data officer and, and the proliferation of that role, they've created the the chief data officer council or chief data council where they come together and do those same things. They share and they collaborate and they kind of build on some of the best practices they have. Is this a council that you're you're getting a lot of value out of? And and I would imagine that it something like this would certainly build and proliferate that role as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, the Federal Privacy Council kind of matches the modus operandi of CISA. And we're an agency built on the foundation of collaboration. The whole point of the Federal Privacy Council is to collaborate, to cooperate, to share notes and research. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've discovered in the cybersecurity world that, well, discovered is a, a strong word. It's that it's been well known for a long time, but it's becoming more and more apparent these days, is that no one person or no one group or no one organization can solve a problem on their own. Uh, we have to partner with each other, share information in a timely and relevant manner, uh, making sure that information is actionable, whether it's everything from best practices to information about a threat uh, to basically information on how we may address a specific risk or mitigate a specific risk. That sharing and collaboration amongst privacy officers at the Federal Privacy Council is really critical because there's a chance that one privacy officer may have seen something, has taken action on it, and figured out what worked and what didn't work so that if other privacy officers do run into the same issue, uh, they're able to take those lessons learned and apply it to their specific departments or agencies. So the Federal Privacy Council, I mean, that collaboration and sharing information, it's absolutely crucial and it's not unique to the Federal Privacy Council, as you stated, uh, but it's something that definitely needs to occur and has been occurring. I know in your role, one of the things that you're doing, um, you mentioned this as we were kind of getting ready for this conversation is looking to uh, help deploy the the president's cyber executive order. And as you've been digging into those things and figuring out the priorities, I'm curious to get your opinion. What are some of the key areas that uh, we as as folks that do business with the government and, and work with the government on a daily basis, what are some of the key areas that we should be familiar with within the, the cyber executive order? 
Sure. So I, we're kind of at a unique moment in time to make a real difference for our nation with an administration that recognizes cybersecurity as a national security imperative, as made out a priority. Uh, back in May, when the president signed the executive order to support our nation's cybersecurity and protect critical infrastructure, uh, the focus on the executive order really kind of looked inwards to the federal government. Now, even though it looked inward to federal government activities, it was never in the intention that this executive order is only for the federal government. Uh, the executive order is really structured to be an executive order that leads by example, where the government needs to get its own internal cybersecurity house in order and set an example to whether it's the private sector or other public sector entities of, hey, this is how we're doing it. These are things that you may want to consider. So I, as the nation's lead agency for protecting the federal civilian government and critical infrastructure against cybersecurity threats, CISA serves as a central role in implementing the executive order. Uh, the, the order, in effect, bolsters our federal government's uh, network security by including greater visibility into cybersecurity threats, advancing incident response capabilities, and driving improvements in security practices for key information technology used by federal agencies. Uh, the information technology used by federal agencies are not for federal agencies alone. Uh, they definitely cover uh, technologies that are used by uh, various sectors across the commercial area and with other public agencies, such as education institutions and state and local governments. And because the federal government must lead by example, the executive order is expected to catalyze prog progress in adopting leading security practices like zero trust architectures and secure cloud environments. So as, as we're talking about um, kind of some of the major cyber issues out there, um, and I know you mentioned that it's beyond just a, a federal level, obviously, CISA uh, is working with uh, state and local entities. One of the big challenges that these groups had over the course of the pandemic were the proliferation of ransomware attacks. And I saw a statistic somewhere um, that it was like a 4,000% increase, I, whether that's accurate or not, I don't know, but it obviously went up. And I'm curious to understand, can you explain what a ransomware attack looks like and why government is such a target? And is this, is this a big priority for you right now? Uh, for the agency, absolutely. Uh, just to kind of adjust the economy of a ransomware attack. Uh, ransomware, I mean, it's not necessarily a new term, but it's a popular term to describe a type of malware attack that goes a step further. So essentially what happens is that a threat actor looks for a vulnerability or looks for some type of gap in your security, uh, whether it is you have poor security practices for access control, so they steal a credential or fake a credential to gain access to your network or systems, or they discover a vulnerability in a piece of software that you use and exploit that vulnerability to gain access. Once they gain access to your system or network, uh, they then move laterally within your network to kind of discover what's the valuable information. And they'll typically take one of two steps. They will either decide that, hey, I am going to lock down your entire network or encrypt your network to kind of hold you at hostage from accessing your network or systems, or I am going to focus in on a specific data set that may exist within your network that I discovered. Uh, we're seeing more increasingly uh, the latter case where uh, threat actors will go ahead and exfiltrate that data and keep a copy of it, lock down your entire network and systems, and then basically exact a threat to you saying that we're going to keep your system locked down or encrypted until you give us a ransom that meets our demands. Typically, it's in the form of a cryptocurrency of some sort. And once you pay us, we'll give you a decryption creed to basically decrypt your network. That being said, that worked for a little, a little while 
but companies and organizations and government agencies starting to get a little bit bold and refuse to pay the ransom demands. So they're now dangling that data that they've exfiltrated from those networks or systems and now are now saying that, hey, uh, we also kind of stole your data. Uh, we are holding it on a private forum or private uh, database on the dark web. And if you don't pay the ransom demands, not only will we not give you the decryption keys to your network, we're actually going to make the information that we stole publicly available. Uh, over the past year, we've seen cybersecurity intrusions increase in both prevalence and impact. This trend reflects concerning changes in the cybersecurity threat landscape. First, we know that nation-state adversaries are investing significantly in building world-class intrusion capabilities. Uh, China and Russia continue to develop capabilities to conduct widespread campaigns targeting commonly used enterprise software, uh, such as intrusions against SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange servers. So those are the vulnerabilities I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, we mean uh, is concern about malicious cyber activity coming from Iran and North Korea as well. Although less capable than China and Russia, these threat actors are a little bit more restrained in their conduct, but their conduct is more focused on certain things. Like in the case of North Korea, they typically target financial institutions or infrastructure for monetary gain. So they have like a specific mission in their activities, whereas others might be more broad in their strokes. Uh, second, we continue to see the democratization of malicious cyber capabilities in which hacking tools can be purchased by and for use by unskilled individuals or even rented to provide a as a service capability. Uh, we see this trend manifesting with the proliferation of ransomware actors. We know that there's actually really a small number of ransomwares and ransomware gangs that actually design and deploy software, user interface, and payment infrastructures to launch these ransomware attacks. But then there are thousands of unskilled criminals who then purchase these services to deploy these attacks. We're therefore seeing the intersection of two concerning trends, both the nation state actors who are getting more capable, and it's also getting easier and easier for criminals to kind of rent these off the shelf ransomware and malware capabilities to launch cyber intrusions. Uh, this is why at CISA, we are focused on understanding the specific tactics and techniques used by cyber adversaries and rapidly sharing that information and guidance about those uh, techniques and tactics with organizations to help block those attacks. At the same time, we know many intrusions can be prevented by adopting best practices like multi-factor authentication, upgrading end-of-life technologies. And for that reason, we're also pushing the adoption of these practices through our campaign with StopRansomware.gov, our single stop for guidance across the United States government. And kind of later in my response there, I kind of give you examples as to why certain things about government agencies or public sector agencies or even private companies are really attractive is that we use end-of-life technologies. Uh, we use poor security and hygiene practices that are easily exploited. Uh, part of the president's EO is to kind of advance from that, end our reliance on end-of-life technologies, introduce new and stronger security practices like multi-factor authentication or using a zero-trust architecture to make it much harder for those uh, individuals to compromise us. It's really interesting. Not only you touch on obviously the the technology side of things, but the 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 cyber hygiene side of things as well. It's one of the things that the uh, CMMC program is looking to mitigate, at least on the DoD side. Do you think a program like that um, could certainly go government wide and, and potentially help mitigate things like this, especially at the the state and local level? Because right now it's only at a federal and a DoD level. But do you think it could expand that far to really kind of put a, a 
put a stopgap in place to prevent some of these attacks? Uh, that is definitely one approach. Uh, I can tell you that over here at DHS, as the broader umbrella, uh, we DHS has been examining something similar to that program. Uh, when you talk about the different sectors or the different industries or uh, different parts of the government, uh, we have to recognize that a lot of these strategies aren't necessarily or shouldn't be used as one size fits all. Uh, so a program like that or an infrastructure or activity like that definitely makes a lot of sense for whether it's whole governments or uh, state and local officials to implement. They have to actually take a look at the individual risks and likelihood of those risks coming to reality to identify what are the best mitigation programs, activities for their respective agencies. So definitely uh, those programs should exist and are probably going to grow and expand and involve other aspects of government and civilian life. Uh, but they're going to need to be carefully tailored to the actual sector they're a part of because uh, unfortunately there is no silver bullet. There is no one size fits all strategy, mm -hmm. but they are definitely programs that need to exist. So beyond the programmatic perspective, are there beyond just simple cyber security solutions out there? Are there technologies that governments can be adopting to support the mitigation of some of these attacks? Uh, absolutely. And uh, we're in an exciting time in the vendor space. There are so many different approaches and so many different technical solutions that are based off of very similar principles that the government's looking for. Uh, so we, we talk about multi-factor authentication. Uh, back in the old days, if you wanted to do multi-factor authentication, you really only had one choice. And it was this nice little token that you would get from a very specific vendor that would show you six or nine digits. Mm -hmm. And you would use that to supplement your login into an information system or a, a network. Uh, multi-factor authentication has evolved significantly over the years. Uh, we've seen exciting things from uh, authentication tools on mobile devices uh, to other factors, uh, not to name vendors, but everything from uh, physical tokens that you insert to machines to virtual tokens that are associated with things such as ID cards like CAC cards and PIV cards. Uh, so a lot of uh, motion in the multi-factor authentication space. Uh, and then there's also technologies that have existed for a long time, but they weren't necessarily interoperable or cohesive in a manner. So uh, there's a standard code FI FIDO for identity authentication. That is a popular standard, but there's also other standards out there that are going to make multi-factor authentication and other type of identity proofing and identity authentication concepts that help support zero uh, trust architectures uh, that are now interoperable with each other so that you're not locked into a single vendor. You can choose from various options that best suits your agency or organization's needs. Because again, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but there are policies and strategies that are pretty universal. It's really finding the vendor and the strategy and the tool that best fits your organization and the vendor space right now, uh, they are meeting the challenge and uh, kind of building out these tools that agencies or organizations can purchase and use. I like that you said that these vendors are meeting the challenge. I, I'd love for you to expound there because one of the things that I, I discuss on this show is how the vendor community can become a true partner to uh, the government leadership in, in terms of some of the things that we touched on at the very beginning of this show, kind of what what are some of your priorities and, and what are some of the things that that really um, that really scare you sometimes? How can the vendor community come in and really partner with you to take away some of those apprehensions? So uh, are there anything are there anything out there that you think the vendor community can can support you with? And how would you look to partner with a vendor community to mitigate some of these issues that you're seeing, especially around ransomware? Uh, yeah, so 
CISA has to exist on partnerships. Uh, we have very close and reliable partnerships uh, with a lot of the members of the vendor community, especially cybersecurity service uh, providers. Uh, th these providers are pretty much the lifeblood of cybersecurity in this country because at the end of the day, whether you're talking about CISA, the FBI, uh, the NSA, or whichever, there's really oh so many things that we can focus in on at one time. Over here at CISA, when we talk about cybersecurity, we really key on critical infrastructure. And there's actually so much critical infrastructure in this country, we're now focusing in on what we call systematically important critical infrastructure. Infrastructure. Uh, it's basically the most important of critical infrastructure. So it's a category on top of a category. So because of the narrow focus that we're able to do because of things such as resource constraints, it's really important for companies to step up and provide solutions to their peers in order to do collective cybersecurity. So we, we work with these vendors and we work with them through multiple avenues. So recently we stood up a uh, organization called the JCDC, uh, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. This is an organization where we work with the whole government and private sector to kind of address those cybersecurity risks in a cohesive manner. This includes everything from doing joint exercises to sharing information, to helping uh, private and public organizations better understand what risks are out there and what we need to collectively address, hence the joint collaborative. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of avenues out there where CISA works with the private sector to identify what these threats are and to kind of share the information on what we need to see addressed. Uh, and because of our narrow focus on who we can support on a day-to-day -day basis, it are, it's these vendors uh, that are doing the day-in and day-out activity of supporting companies and uh, non-government organizations and public uh, organizations uh, do their cybersecurity activities. Very few companies and organizations actually have the resources to have their own top-of-the-line cybersecurity shop of their own. They heavily rely upon uh, commercial service providers. And those commercial service providers, at the end of the day, need to coordinate and they need to work with the government in order to properly address the threats that we're seeing on the landscape. It's one thing that's for us to tell every single company in the United States that, hey, here's a specific threat or here's a best practice that we want you to follow. Good luck. And it's another thing for them to have direct support on addressing those threats and implementing those practices. So this is the space where those vendors really need to operate in because uh, they can be both a force multiplier for the government, but they are also providing a critical service that every company needs that may not have the expertise to implement. While we're on the topic of uh, public sector, private sector partnerships, one of the things I'm really curious about and kind of piqued my interest uh, a few months ago, back when the, the the pipeline on the East Coast was hacked into, and it shocked me the number of um, components of our of our United States critical infrastructure that are actually managed by the private sector. I mean, these are private companies that are running some of the imperative utilities that we rely on as citizens on a daily basis. At CISA, how do you interact with those type of organizations and how do you ensure that things like that hack that happened and kind of um, trickle down into some of the panic we had around gas prices and, and, and gas um, uh, resources, how do you ensure that things like that don't happen when you work with a, a private sector entity that you don't control? Absolutely. So we work with a number of government agencies who are considered to be the standard bearers or uh, authorities in respective spaces. 
Uh, back in the day, we used to call them sector-specific agencies. Uh, there's a, a new name for them, but the, the name is also constantly changing. But the idea is that there is an agency that's typically either a regulator or an authority in a specific space. Uh, transportation would typically be either the Department of Transportation or the movement of transportation would be the Transportation Security Agency, uh, where we work with them to actually interact with those private sector partners. Uh, CISA is not going to have an established relationship with every single company out there. But if you are a regulator or if you provide best practices or if you provide uh, baseline controls for a specific sector, CISA is able to work with those agencies and work through them to help an, a, a company either work through a cyber incident or work on their own cybersecurity posture. Uh, that too is another force multiplier out there. Now, ultimately, CISA is not going to be able to control the activities of uh, all those private sector entities, nor do we want to control the activities out there. Uh, but by using those sector-specific agencies, we're able to allow those companies to work with somebody that they know already, that they trust, that they already partner with in non-cybersecurity areas. So when it comes to a cybersecurity incident or improving their cybersecurity posture, uh, we're able to work with a trusted partner they already have and work through them to address their concerns. That's very, that's very interesting. I mean, looking at, I, I didn't think about this, the idea beyond just oversight as being that trusted partner and helping them understand best practices around creating uh, a more resilient and, and stable uh, enterprise to, to mitigate some of the things. So I, I'm, it's at least reassuring to me to, to know that you are involved in doing that. I do want to pivot the conversation a little bit. And I think anybody who was following the election um, in uh, in 2020 now, I guess, I memory's escaping me now, um, remembers uh, CISA as ensuring some of the security measures around the election. And my question here is is less of a, a, a retrospective, but I'm really curious to to understand one, how CISA does go about ensuring election security. But two, one of the things that I'm really curious about is the potential of online voting in the future, because I think it it certainly opens up the aperture in terms of uh, allowing inclusion for voting. But I, th I think it's also a, just a more convenient way, especially in a, in a uh, COVID era that we're in, for people to get out and, and have their voices heard. Um, I, I'm really curious to get your, your take on some of those things. Uh, so election security remains a top priority for CISA. Uh, and we continue to ensure state and local election officials have the tools and support that they need. CISA is just one piece of the federal government's efforts to protect election infrastructure. Uh, we work very closely with our partners at the Election Assistance Commission, the FBI, DOJ, and intelligence community, and some other agencies to help accomplish this goal. But more importantly, we, we work with the state and local officials because at the end of the day, elections are administered by state and local officials. They're not actually administered by the federal government by any means. And the information and the uh, practices that we share with them helps them uh, helps inform the decisions they make on things such as election administration or how uh, they work. Now, for our specific role uh, to support state and local election officials, at no cost, we provide voluntary and confidential services. So again, as you know, state and local governments, they run the elections. So we help them with phishing campaign assessments, cyber hygiene scans, penetration tests, physical security services, amongst other services. Uh, we're also hiring cyber state coordinators for each of the 50 states who will serve as the federal risk advisor for the state and provide additional cybersecurity support. 
CISA provides hundreds of no-cost voluntary cybersecurity assessments, services, and products to provide election officials with the information necessary to manage their cyber risk through systems. So ultimately, it's not really CISA's role to say that, hey, you should or shouldn't use this piece of technology, but we're there to help them understand what the risks are, help them figure out what are the proper mitigations for those risks, what's a real risk versus a perceived risk, what's a known vulnerability, and so on. And those state election officials then takes all that information and factors that into their calculus as to whether they want to use some sort of technology or whether they should use some sort of technology or not. Uh, so really, it's making sure those state election officials, one, gets our services, but becomes as informed as possible about those various technologies so that they can make appropriate decisions for their dis- jurisdictions and their constituents. Interesting. So, so as you take a look at that, what do you think the chances are of having an online means for for voting would be in the future you're obviously you're at least your organization is more familiar with some of the inherent risks for an online election or or at least a partially or hybrid let's say hybrid voting uh, election do you think that's something that's possible in the near future the temptation is there to use that technology and there's temptation to use other things uh as well again it's not really just a place to say that whether that should or should not be done but really i'm we want to provide those election officials with the facts on the ground so that they're able to make an educated determination as to whether they should. Uh, accessibility in voting is always going to be important, uh, but accessibility won't matter if people do not have confidence in uh, yeah. the voting process or results. Really, I think that's a really good point. Um, so before before I give you a chance to, to give any final thoughts, uh, one more question that I have, especially when it comes to some of the misinformation uh, campaigns that are out there. Obviously, some of them revolve around elections, but some of them don't. Um, and a lot of these attacks really manifest themselves in the form of social media. What are some of the ways that CISA is working with these entities to mitigate some of these attacks and and perhaps educate the the citizens out there around what a what an attack looks like? Uh, it's great that you brought up education because that's really CISA's focus when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. So uh, disinformation is really an existential threat to the United States, our democratic way of life, and of the critical infrastructure and functions on which it relies. Uh, Recently, as a part of CISA's Resilience series, of which uh, we've published actually a graphic novel called Real Fake uh, for some of the younger communities, communities, it communicates the dangers and risks associated with dis and misinformation through fictional stories that are inspired by real world events. We really want to try to tackle communities young and old with this. Uh, CISA encourages everyone to use care when consuming information they receive or come across. Uh, Practicing things like media literacy, such as identifying and and verifying sources, seeking alternative viewpoints, and finding trusted sources of information. That typically is the most effective strategy in limiting the effect of disinformation both to yourself and colleagues. Uh, The Resilience Series highlights the importance of evaluating information sources to help individuals understand the risks from things like foreign influence or dis and mis and malinformation on our society and democracy. James, I really appreciate the time uh, that you spent with us today. Any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Sure. Uh, So often a cyber intrusion begins not with a sophisticated novel attack, but with someone clicking on a malicious link or opening a malicious email attachment. Uh, It's opportune that we're discussing this during October, which is uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, We're working with our partners to raise Americans' collective cybersecurity awareness. This year's theme is Do Your Part, Be Cyber Smart. 
uh, it is important that we take a moment to remind everyone while, uh, listening today that each one of us can actually do things to both help ourselves stay safe and ensure a collective secure environment. And by doing that, we're starting with the basics, basically what we call cyber hygiene. And there's easy and common sense ways to protect yourself online. Uh, so part of the awareness campaign that uh, you'll see, not just through CISA, but through many of our partners, we talk about things such as updating software, thinking before you click, using strong passwords or multi-factor authentication. Uh, th these are things that individuals can take easy steps, not just to protect themselves, but these are the same cybersecurity steps that we require of companies, uh, of government agencies to do. Cybersecurity is a team effort going from the smallest level to the highest level. So we just kind of want to put it out there that uh, everyone has their role to do their part. James, thanks again for the time. I think some some really good points and, and I like that you addressed not only is it uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month uh, in the month of October, but um, it really is a, it's a top-down, bottom-up approach, uh, especially when it comes to cyber hygiene. So um, I certainly in encourage those out there, take those uh, necessary tips from from James and what CISA is putting out. And I think ultimately it'll, it'll help reinforce the infrastructure that we have going forward. James, thanks again for the time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Shittestrayb. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.